at the top, uh, our, our guys that run the sound, everything that happens so that we can have a Sunday morning, the things that you never see unless things go bad, right? Uh, they make everything so flawless every week. So uh, thank you guys so much for all that you do. Uh, but when we were singing that last song, that was the one song that we semi-learned in Romanian when we were there over the summer. Um, and so every time I hear that song, this makes me stop and be grateful for our ministry partners in Romania, all they're doing to share and spread the gospel there. Uh, Shane and Lisa Daniels over in Nicaragua. So let us just always remember all that we're partnering with to get the gospel out, not just here in Morgan County, but literally across the world. And those ministry partners that are dealing with loneliness and, and struggles and strife and all those things, let us always remember them in our prayers. Also, sorry, three quick things. Number two, um, Tara Fielder is in the back, and I just have to stop real quick, and yes. So for those that don't know, her husband had a tumor on the brain, and so he went into surgery. It was supposed to be uh, three weeks ago, went into surgery on Monday, um, and God, our, our, guys, our God is just fantastic, right? So he had the surgery Monday, and then homeboy came home Wednesday. Uh, his brain was open, right? Like, so uh, the church has been praying. I'm just so grateful to see how great that's been. And then, Terry, you're just a rock star for being here. Or maybe you need to get away from him. I don't know, but I'm glad you're here. <laughs> uh, so praise God for that. The next one, a couple weeks ago, we saw God do a lot of incredible things here. South Salvations take place. Uh, but what happened outside of this room was people um, just, just kind of keeping that momentum going in their own hearts, asking God, what are you asking of me? And one of those that we had the conversation for uh, came up to me this morning and said, Gabe, I want you to know and I want the church to know that I've recommitted my life to Jesus. I'm not looking back. I'm only moving forward. And so I just want to recognize Mark Kilgore for that. Uh, you can stand up, Mark. It's just so cool to see the Lord doing all of that. Uh, and lastly, uh, and then I promise we'll get into the text, uh, I'm preaching 13 verses today. I did two last week and we went 45 minutes, so I don't know what's going to happen. But uh, the count, Carl, don't start the counter yet. It ain't, it ain't time. Um, I think Xander might have mentioned it. I wasn't in the room, but I want to mention it again. October 18th is our next family reunion. But what we're doing there is the chili cook-off. All the family groups are going to cook a bunch of chili. We're going to have trunk or treat. We're going to have inflatables. Um, this is the first time, really, that we've had a massive outreach here on our property in the last year and a half. And so I want you to use this opportunity to invite all your friends, family, co-workers, anybody that you know uh, that needs the good news of the gospel. This is such a simple way to get them here and let them rub shoulders. I think we have one of the most friendliest churches I've ever been a part of. Uh, so we can just get people around our people. I know God will do great things. So uh, October 18th, put it in your calendars, 6 o'clock here, chili, um, chunk or treat, all the fun things will be here. So uh, please use that as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Sound good? All right, now I'm going to start the countdown. Here we go. So uh, I grew up with two brothers, no sisters. Um, so if I'm a little rough around the edges, it's that, right? Um, and my mom had two brothers, no sisters. So it was a very manly household. Not that my mom's manly. She's very not manly, but uh, it's 2023. She can do what she wants. So, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, back up. Uh, should not have said that. Uh, so anyways, growing up in the house with two brothers, there was always the challenge. Everything was a competition no matter what. And so uh, there was never a time where you said, I can do this. I think I can do this. It was never unchecked. Anybody else have a household like this? The moment you make any kind of claim, one of the brothers is always going to say, prove it. 
right? So, I mean, it could have been the smallest thing. I can get the remote faster than you. Prove it. And then we're off to the races. Or I can rip this phone book in half. Y'all remember the power team? Anybody go see the, okay. Right? So we came home, all of us, like four-year-olds. I can rip that phone book in half. Prove it. And then we tried and our parents got pretty mad at us because phone books were valuable in that day. Or like, I can, this is one, this is a true story. And I accomplished it. I said, I can hit a flop shot over our house. Any golfers in here? I did. I did. And it was awesome. And, uh, but I'm not going to do it at our house because, you know, I, I would bust the window out. But I did. I mean, there was always a competition going in our house. And so now what we're going to see this morning as Jesus is transitioning from the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible time of teaching, uh, now he's going, he's leaving the time of teaching and going into the world. And so all those that heard the sermon are in their minds thinking, okay, prove it. So I've just heard you say, I've heard you preach for two hours. You preached with authority. There was a standing ovation. Incredible things were taking place. But it's that old adage, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? And so this is the first shot we get to really see in the book of Matthew of Jesus actually walking the walk, actually doing what he says. And it's pretty miraculous how he chooses to start his ministry. So um, Matthew chapter 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. So if you have that, go ahead and stand with me. Matthew 8, verse 1. And we're going to read 1 through 13 together. Matthew 8, 1 through 13. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. Verse five, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And when he said this, I will, when he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you, for you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you so much for this scripture that you've given us. Uh, Thank you for sending your son here so that we can see you with flesh and blood on, loving, serving, and healing those like us. Uh, Father, would you speak clearly to us this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I love the way that this starts, right? So Jesus is preaching this miraculous sermon. When he comes down from the mount, of course we see verse 1, great crowds follow him. 
And why wouldn't it? I mean, you hear this teaching with authority. Why wouldn't you lean in a little bit closer to hear all that Jesus is teaching, all that he's saying? And so within the crowd, you have multiple groups of people, which we talked about over the last few weeks. You've got uh, those, that, the Gentiles, the non-Jews that are truly looking for an answer, truly looking for salvation. Uh, then you have those that have grown up historically, uh, Jewish people that have followed loosely the Jewish traditions, uh, but are asking themselves, maybe this is the actual Messiah. Maybe this is God in the flesh coming to save us from our sins. And then you had the religious leaders that thought this guy was just nonsense, uh, that were watching him so they could learn how we tripped up, uh, trap him, and then discredit him quickly. All that's taking place. But as Jesus' ministry begins, uh, we can really start to see Jesus fleshing out what he came to accomplish, right? Because yes, he wanted to teach, but the first thing that we see about Jesus is he came to seek and save that which was lost, right? He wanted to run after, he wanted to save those and spend eternity with them in heaven, save them from their sins, give them a hope where there was no other hope. And once that takes place, then he wanted to train them to be fishers of men. He wanted to make disciples then that would turn around and go make disciples. And so we hear that word all the time. I mean, discipleship could mean a million different things to a million different people. But simply put, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It's to live out the Shema, right? We talk about this often. This in Deuteronomy 6, and then uh, Jesus quotes it again in the Gospels, which is to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. So to love God with all of our heart is just being a devoted worshiper. It's what we get to do in this room this morning is we get to sing loud the praises of our God. But it's not just an in-the-room thing. It's every moment of every day. And to love God with our soul is to be a joyful friend, which this is where we're really going to lean in and see how Jesus loves and serves those around him as a joyful friend. To love Jesus or love God with our mind is to be a lifelong learner. We should always constantly be learning, growing our knowledge of him, who he is, and what he's done for us. And lastly, to love God with all of our strength is to be a disciple maker, a bold disciple maker. And so with those four characteristics, we'll start to see all of those taking place in the life of Jesus as we set out to emulate Jesus within our own life. And so as Jesus is coming down, as we keep that in mind, like I said, we really get to zoom in on Jesus being a joyful friend. Because the central point of this text is simply this, that Jesus is living out the truths he preached on the Sermon on the Mount, looking for those that do not have life figured out. That Jesus is single-handedly going after those that do not have life figured out, but understand they need something more. And then he joyfully heals them as their friend. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel, that he's seeking out those that need help, that need assistance, and he's giving it to them. So, so for us, what I want us to see this morning is simply this. The way that we respond to Jesus shows, how, shows faith we truly have in him. So the way that we respond to Jesus shows how much faith we truly have in him. And we're going to see two different examples with the leper and the centurion. When they come face to face with Jesus, how they respond really shows where they're placing their faith. Because that's a question for all of us, really. When we come face to face with Jesus, whether it be in prayer or the end of our lives, what are we going to say? How are we going to react? What then are we going to do? Because in those moments, that's what reveals what faith is in us. That we can say whatever we want to, and we can uh, pretend, and we can fake it till we make it, and all these things. But when we come face to face with Jesus, 
In those moments, that's going to depend how much faith we truly have. So let's go back to verse 1 and 2. As we look at the lepers, he's coming face to face with Jesus. Uh, What was his reaction? And it's simply this, point number one. We don't ask Jesus if he can. We ask in faith that he will. So this is what we're going to see through the story of the leper, that we don't ask Jesus if he can. We ask in faith that he will. So just imagine the scene for a second. Jesus is coming down, and there's crowds everywhere. And as a leper, if, if you've grown up in church, you, you've heard a little bit about lepers in, in Sunday school growing up, and at one point in your life, you thought you had leprosy too. Anybody else? Like they're explaining it, the Sunday school's explaining it, and you got that spot in your arm, I'm like, I'm done. Like, this is it. Um, we, we all did that growing up. The leper was on the felt board, and then we died. That's what we thought was going to happen. So Um, But Jesus is coming down the mountain, crowds everywhere, and somehow this leper gets to him. Because we we know that that leprosy is a really, I mean, it's a horrible disease, honestly. Uh, It affects your skin, it affects your throat, uh, and it's highly contagious. Uh, And most of the time, your nerves, endings start stop working, and so um, you can cut off a fingertip and never know it. Uh, Or you could be sitting next to a fire being burned, and you would never know it because your nerve endings have stopped working. Um, So not only is this a disease where the skin just looks terrible, it has this grayish thing, starts falling off, uh, but also there's a lot of uh, hardships for the lepers because, man, they just couldn't work, so they were always in ratty clothes, they couldn't feed themselves, they couldn't take care of themselves, and so it it was a really bad deal. But then you take the Jewishness of the time, right? So we're in a Roman, in a Roman village. You take the Jews that are living there. Because of the Old Testament law, you couldn't get anywhere close to anything unclean, which included the lepers. So not only could they not work, not only could they not provide for themselves, but they were also pushed to the fringes of society, had no friends, had no hope. Uh, there was nothing they could do to fix themselves because they're lepers, and then they have no friends to walk them through the situation. And so we have this scene happening where Jesus has literally just taught in Matthew 5.1, right? Uh, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. So look back with me, just flip one page over, uh, Matthew 5.1. He begins the, fi- the famous Sermon on the Mount saying, or excuse me, 5.2. I'll lie again, 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven. So blessed are the poor in the spirit. Blessed are the ones that are keenly aware of their weakness, of their sin, or their depravity. Blessed are those, because there is the kingdom of heaven. And so as Jesus is coming down the mountain, the first person that he comes face to faith with outside the crowd is someone that is truly, uh, truly at the end of his wit, poor in spirit. And so you can just imagine, this is almost like a movie, uh, the the camera kind of panning around and what's Jesus going to do? He's just said this, he's just preached this long sermon about this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Now he's coming face to face with the beggar. What then is he going to? To do, And this is a miraculous thing that's taking place. And so in this moment, the leper begins to speak first, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, this is, this is not some little sentence. If you will, you can make me clean. Because here's how most of us would have said that prayer. If you can, will you make me clean? Now, those are two different sentences with two uh, incredibly different meanings. The leper says, if you will, you can make me clean. 
There, there was no doubt in the leper's mind that Jesus is the great physician. There's not a single doubt in the leper's mind that he can do it. The question is, will he? But for most of us, when we come face to face to Jesus in prayer, when we're spending time on our knees, are we praying with that type of certainty or are we saying, if you can, will you do this? And if you can denotes that we don't actually believe that he can. But the leper coming face to face says, I know you can do this, will you? And so as all of this is taking place, as the crowds are watching, I can just imagine the religious leaders leaning in, seeing what he's going to do, because if he actually heals him, there's a lot of things happening at play. All the authority that he just talked about, he actually has. And if Jesus touches him, doesn't this make Jesus unclean? So if, I mean, if, if I'm a Pharisee, if I'm wanting Jesus to fail miserably, I'm rooting for him to touch this leper. That way we can kick him to the fringes of society. Jesus is gone. Now I remain in power. But what takes place here is just incredible. Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. So again, in that moment, just imagine the Pharisees like, it's done. This false prophet this guy is out of here. He touched a leper. This whole thing's about to fall apart. Job over. Next, we remain in power. But that's not where the sentence ends, is it? And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. So we see one commentator puts it this way. According to Leviticus 5.3, Jesus becomes unclean the moment he touches the leper. Yet, by means of his healing touch, it is as he transcends the law without abolishing it. Jesus doesn't make, excuse me, Jesus' touch does not make Jesus unclean. Rather, it cleanses the unclean. This is the point of the gospel, right? Jesus' touch doesn't make Jesus unclean. Rather, it cleanses the unclean. But in another sense, by touching the leper, Jesus is showing us that he's willing to take on impurities and is foreshadowing his taking of all of ours as well on the cross. Put differently, his mission is the cross. So right as Jesus gets done teaching, we already see a foreshadowing of Jesus being willing to take the impurities from the leper, just like one day he's going to take our sins from us as he dies on the cross for us. I mean, this is already a foreshadowing of what's taking place. So Jesus instantly, within moments of coming down from the mountain, he's walking the walk in, talking the talk, and this leper has now been set free. But it's not only he's free from leprosy, right? Now he's actually in relationships. I, I wish that there was some way that we could know how old this leper was, right? How long has he been by himself? How long has he been begging at the city gates? How long has he not had a friend and not had a touch of anybody else? I mean, I, I'm not a physical toucher. Y'all know this about me by now. But if you've not had a hug in 10 years, can you imagine what that must feel like? And so in an instance, not only is he physically clean, but relationally he's brought into the fold, into the family of God where he can hug and high-five and touch. And there's just miraculous scene taking place. All because, all because, and, and I truly believe this, if he would have rephrased his how we would say it, Jesus, if you can, not Jesus, if you will. That's what faith and action actually looks like. And let's be honest, we've all been in those seasons. We've all been in those moments. There's that famous old adage that there's no such thing as atheists in a foxhole. Have y'all heard that? 
We've all been in those moments where we're on our knees begging before the Lord. But what about in our day in, day out life? When we approach Jesus in prayer, are we praying with this kind of confidence? Do we actually believe that he can do anything he wants to? We're asking him if he's willing. I'll put it this way. Uh, when I was in college, um, my wife and I, we were in Athens. We were hanging out. Uh, I was in uh, Athens at the time living uh, because we'd already moved to Athens, but I didn't get to UGA. But that's a whole other story. So uh, UNG Watkinsville was great. Um, so we were living in, or I, we were not living, excuse me. Whoop. I was living in Athens. She came down to visit. At that time, her mom had a heart attack in LJ, right? So uh, she's getting a helicopter ride from LJ down to Piedmont, Atlanta, a hospital in Atlanta, Kennesaw, Kennesaw, that's it. Yeah, she was going to Kennesaw. So we get in the car in Athens. We're going as fast as we can. And of course, on 316, there's some big car accident. So I see a police officer sitting there. And so I go running over to him saying, is there any way, I know you can do this. Is there any way you can give us a little escort to the, just around this traffic? Uh, my mother-in-law, future mother-in-law is having a heart attack. I really want to get her daughter to it. Is there any way you can do this? And I knew he could. He is the law enforcement. He's got the car. He's got the lights. He can do whatever he wants to. So I'm sitting there on the side of 316 begging this man, will he please do it? Because I know that he can. It was never an issue of can or cannot. It's will or will not. So in the same way, when we're pleading with God in our prayers, are we saying, I don't know that you can, but I'm going to ask anyway. Or are we having the faith of this leper that's saying, you can undoubtedly do this, but will you? Will you please do this for me? And here's the sign. Here's where we get this. Again, go back to Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're truly poor in spirit, if you truly understand the depravity and sin of who you actually are, you're going to ask, will. But if you're puffed up in conceit in your own knowledge, you're going to ask, can. Because in the back of your mind, you're already coming up with plan B, C, and D. Well, if Jesus doesn't come through with me, I know I can do this, and I know I can do this, and I know I can do this. But we have to approach Jesus like the leper, of going, I'm, I'm done. I've been this way. There's literally no way for me to fix this situation. If I could fix this, I already would have. So there's no doubt that you can, but the question is, will you? Because I have nothing left. And if we were to look at our prayer lives, how many of them look like that? How many of them are actually on our knees going, God, I know you can, will you? And I have nothing to bring to the table. But the example of this leper is such an encouragement for us as we approach Jesus. But it doesn't only stop there. So we have, we have a leper that's unclean, that could not be around, uh, the Jews could not really be around people, and that's who Jesus first goes to. His first miracle is not to a Jewish person, but maybe his second miracle is to a Jewish person. Let's look at verse 5. When he had entered into Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him and appealing to him. All right, so miracle number two for Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount, if you're keeping track, was not a Jew either. So a centurion is a Roman soldier, a Roman guard. So as Jesus is coming down from the mountain, and there's Jews all around him, and they're trying to figure out, is this actually the Savior? Is this the Messiah? They're feeling him out. They're testing him. Number one, leper, he touched him. Jesus isn't supposed to do that. Number two, centurion, Roman soldier, who all the Jews despised. 
They cannot stand them. One, because this is their land, right? This is Israel. You're not supposed to be here. And number two, under the Roman rule, man, they were just being abused and used. This is why, and we'll get there in a couple weeks, Matthew was a tax collector. That's why everyone hated Matthew, because he worked for the Roman government. So we see Jesus first go into a leper, and number two, go into a centurion god, a Roman soldier, someone that they all despised and hated. But we see for here at point number two that the centurion approaches Jesus with all humility. So how then are we supposed to learn from the centurion that we see him approaching with all humility? Look back at verse eight. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. And there's so many surprises. I mean, again, if we don't understand the culture, the day and age, this is why I will scream contextualization, contextualization. We have to understand who the Bible's written to and what's going on at that day to truly understand it. We can't just flip through our Bible, find a pretty verse, put it on a t-shirt, and then preach it to the world. Because we might be doing something, saying something that it does not mean at all. So the surprises that we see here are pretty impressive. The first I already mentioned the, the surprise that he was not only a Roman soldier, but that means he was a Gentile. So here's a non-Jew Roman soldier, and all the Jewish people just despised him. The second surprise is that this was a centurion, meaning he was under the lordship of Caesar. He worked for Caesar as a soldier. And so what did he refer to Jesus as? Lord. Twice. So that's a name that should have only been used for his boss. You don't call anybody else that. That's only reserved for Caesar. But what did he do? He used the word twice. And the third surprise is that he made an appeal on behalf of his servant. I mean, this was just another soldier. This is a guy that he could have said, man, I don't, I don't need him. Get rid of him. I'll just, there's 30 lined up behind him. No big deal. But we already see that this centurion soldier is very different. But the biggest shock that we see is what he tells to Jesus. When Jesus goes, yeah, I'll, I'll, I can handle it. But the centurion replied in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now this phrase, I am not worthy, would make a lot of sense coming out of the leper, wouldn't it? For the leper to go, man, I'm on the outcast of society. I am not worthy for you to help me, for you to be with me. I cannot do anything on my own. I'm not worthy. But here's the centurion servant. Here's someone that's worked his way up in the Roman guard. He's got 80 to 100 soldiers underneath him. He's kind of a man's man. He's kind of a who's who, right? Like he's on the radar for Caesar. And so for him to look Jesus in Jesus's face and say, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come over here. I'm not even worthy for you to be in my presence was a massive thing for him to say. He already called him Lord. And now he's saying, I'm, I'm not even worthy. Don't, don't come over, just speak it. Because I have men that work for me. I know how this works. I tell them, do this, they do this. I know that you control the armies of angels. So you don't even have to come, just send one over because I'm no longer worthy. I'm not worthy worthy. Now again, let's take that to us. How often do we begin our prayers with that simple confession and actually mean it? 
How often do we pray, come face to face with Jesus, and the first thing that we say is, I am no, not worthy, not one part of me, that I am truly, Matthew 5, 3, poor in spirit. Are you starting to see how this sermon and all this is connecting? That the way that he started is, blessed are those that are poor in spirit. And as he's coming face to face with those that are poor in spirit, he's actually doing what he said he'll do. He's actually giving them the kingdom of heaven. And so when he prays, when he comes face to face, I'm not worthy for us. And we start our prayers, or we starting our prayers saying, I'm not worthy. Because here's the reality. And this is something that we all joke about, that we're all aware of. But it's also deeply rooted in every single one of us, as Americans, is this idea of entitlement. And we can, we can point fingers at this generation or that generation. We can, we can say all that we want to about well, this person or that person or they're real entitled. Or that. We, we all are. None of us really want for nothing. None of us, I mean, we, we are spoiled where we live. And praise God that he chose us to live here in this spot, in this time, for a reason, for a purpose. But I can promise you it wasn't for us to be entitled, selfish, and stuck up. But when we pray, we have to understand that the, the mindset of entitlement is in all of us. I was reading one article a couple of years ago, and he called it the dark ages of entitlement. Is this what our season of life is going to go down in a couple centuries? As people look back through history and look at our time, is that going to be the title of our generations, the dark ages of entitlement, where we made every single decision and everything, not out of what's betterment for society, not what's betterment for the world, but what's better for me and mine. And we're, we're fools to think that that does not come into our faith with him. That it's very easy for us to say, I'm not worthy, Jesus. You're not, I'm not worthy for you to come over. But really, inside of our heart of hearts, we think we are. We, we think we actually are. And, and let me just point you, I know you might be arguing with me, uh, how easily offended do we get over things that don't really matter? Right? I mean, how easily do we get, like, little things mess up our day. Traffic destroys us. I'm, I'm figuring I'm not alone on those little giggles. Because this entitlement, uh, because we deserve to get where we want to on time. And then we take that same mindset to Jesus. How often are our prayers not, I'm not worthy, but I deserve this, Jesus. So, the centurion soldier could have said, Jesus, I need you to come do this because here's who I am. Uh, I work for Caesar, you know him, he's a pretty big deal. And I have a hundred soldiers underneath me, I'm pretty big deal. So if you don't come over and do this for me right now, you're in a bunch of trouble. Now we would never express it that way, but a lot of tone in our hearts are expressed in that exact same manner. Jesus, I owe this, or you owe me this, I deserve this, you better answer this prayer. And we see that if, if the centurion would have responded that way, nothing would have worked. That Jesus would have said, hmm, okay. And he would have turned and walked. So how then are we supposed to respond to the face of Jesus? Matthew 5, 3. We lean in to being poor in spirit. Now lastly, we see this miraculous thing take place. And I, and I just love it. Look back with me at verse 9. I quoted this a little bit earlier, but, but here's what the man, the centurion says. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. 
And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He, he, verse 10, just, it should blow all of us away. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. When Jesus, okay, so this is, this is God in the flesh, right? This is Jesus Christ. And when he heard, not a Pharisee teaching, When he heard not a scribe talking about the law, when he heard a Gentile Roman soldier speak in such a manner that I'm not worthy to do anything, I know you can, I know you will, and I'm trusting you. It says, Jesus marveled and said to his follower, so he stopped. It was such a big deal that he turned. And who do you think was the closest up front watching all this play out was the religious leaders. And he turns and teaches to the crowd that was following. Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such a faith. Okay, now there's, there, there's some contextualization that's happening right here. Because we read that, and it's like, okay, cool. That was a sword to the heart of those that were sitting there listening. I, I mean, that was little, a big cut to the jugular. Because here, these Jews that have grown up in a Jewish tradition, that have done all the right things, they followed all the rules, they followed all the laws, they did exactly what they thought they were supposed to do, just heard that this Roman soldier, that this Gentile pagan, disgusting human being, has more faith and more clout in heaven than all of the nation of Israel. I mean, you talk about being offended. The, the jaws were dropping in the room at that moment. I mean, and I would imagine in a crowd that size, there was already some guys bowing up. I mean, squeezing those fists going, Jesus, come one step closer. Because what Jesus just said was incredibly offensive to those that were hearing it. That no one in Israel, no Jewish person has as much faith as this evil, wicked Roman Gentile soldier. I mean, the moment here, you could just cut the tension with a knife. But Jesus just sticks it in and then keeps twisting. Verse 11. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness and the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what Jesus just said. I'm extending the kingdom of heaven to everyone. As far as from the east is to the west. This is no longer about do this and don't do this. But this is about placing all your hope, all your faith, all your trust in me. And so those that are still stuck in the fact that i got to do this and don't do this, you are no longer going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But those that put all their faith in me as their Lord and Savior, it doesn't matter Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, nothing matters. You're going to be with me in heaven for eternity. Jesus just flipped the script and said, it's no longer about rules and regulations. It's about following and putting your hope and your faith in me. And those standing there could not handle it. I mean, when we fast forward, and I say fast forward, it's going to be probably a year and a half. But when we finish the book of Matthew, and we start seeing just the anger and the revile of those religious leaders that wanted to murder him and would do it at all cost, it all started right here. When Jesus is saying, there's a new way and it's me. And either you come follow after me or you're going to be in a place where there's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And they did not get it. 
But for us, it's not that. I've said it before. No one in this room has that Jewish lineage that these Pharisees and religious leaders did. So when Jesus is saying this example to those listening, it doesn't really miss, or it kind of misses us. But for us, what do we put our hope in that will actually save us? Being a good person, right? Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you're a good person. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you have perfect church attendance. It doesn't matter if you do all the right things every single time. If you're putting your faith in that to save you, you're going to end up in the place where the weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you put all your hope in what you are doing, you are just like the religious leaders. And God help us, we live in such a day and age in the Bible Belt where that is so prevalent. Where we know how to talk in front of certain people and how not to talk in front of certain people. And we know how to dress and when to raise our hands and when to open our Bibles and what Bible to have. And we do all these things on the outside that make us look like we're just the perfect Christians. And we go home and we sit and we talk and gossip about, man, could you believe so-and-so was in church? I cannot believe that. I've been to that church every day for the last 15 years. I'm the perfect Christian. They show up one time. Do you know what they're actually doing? Who is Jesus actually proud of in that moment? the sinner that showed up knowing they need the gospel or the self-righteous one sitting there looking down their nose at someone that uh, they know nothing about. And so we see that the lineage might not be our deal, but there's tendencies in us, in the the Babel Belt, to have the same pharisaical, I'm going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to follow all the rules and regulations, but we're putting all of the hope on salvation on our end and not on King Jesus. We're not resting in him. We're not trusting in him. We're still thinking that a proper pedigree, a proper lineage, a proper do this and do, don't do this is going to save us, not putting all of our hope and faith in Jesus. Because here's the scary thing about faith. Hebrews 11 puts it perfect. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. So for us to put our faith in Jesus means we can't actually see it. And that's incredibly difficult for us to do. Verse 2, for its people of old received their condemnation, but by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not seen and things that are visible. So it's not good deeds, it's not lineage, it's faith and faith alone that saves us. So right now, in this moment, what are you banking on? I used this example a couple weeks ago. But when you come face to face with Jesus and he's saying, what can I do? Why should I let you into heaven? What is going to be your answer? What is going to be your response? Well, I was a good person. I didn't drink that much. I didn't cuss that much. I tried really hard to raise my kids right. I read my Bible when I could, and I was pretty active in church. You think Jesus is going to let you in on that? Those that he's going to let in are going to be like the leper and the centurion soldier going, you shouldn't, because there's nothing I can offer. I'm, I'm here begging something from you. Will you? Can you? Because I can do nothing. I'm nothing but poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer. I know you can let me in, Jesus. Will you? And that is going to be the faith that's required. 
So we see this, I mean, just this incredible story. The moment Jesus ends his teaching, he starts walking the walk and talking the talk. There's three massive things that we can learn. Number one, we don't ask Jesus if he can. We ask in faith that he will. So as we pray, as we approach Jesus, we ask Jesus that he will. Number two, we approach Jesus with all humility. We don't boast anything. We don't bring anything to the table. We only approach him with all humility. Number three, we understand that we are saved by faith, not anything else. Faith alone, not lineage, not good works, not deeds. Nothing else can we bring to the table. But I, w- I want to leave us with this one thing. Because what we're going to have to balance, I mean, it's going to kind of be a, a ping pong match, right? What, who had an Atari? I'm trying to figure out age groups in here. Atari, okay. Who doesn't know what an Atari is? There's a few. It's, it's okay. It's okay. So uh, what, what was that uh, Pong? I don't know who knew where I was going, but you're a prophet, my friend. Uh, I'm having the Pong back and forth, and we're going to have to do the entire book of uh, Matthew because here's what's constantly taking place in the book of Matthew. On one end, you have the religious Pharisee leaders, and so Jesus is constantly having to deflect and push the gospel into them. But the other end, you're constantly having the lepers, the centurions, those that desperately need the hope of the gospel, and Jesus is having to teach to them. So, so the entire book of Matthew is this pong match back and forth, where Jesus is speaking to this crowd, and then speaking to this crowd, and then speaking to this crowd. And so what we're having to do here is the same thing. We're having to address those that have grown up in the South Bible Belt Church their entire life and have been inoculated to the gospel. And we pray, we do pray with a sense of entitlement. Or we don't pray at all because we don't actually think Jesus can answer it. But as long as we look good and and behave well, no one's ever going to know because prayer is a private thing and you can't ask about private things. That is the Bible about Christianity. But on the other side, there's people in this room that are feeling incredibly hopeless right now in this moment. There's people that have walked into this room that don't need the reprimanding of the Pharisee but they need the hope from the leper. They don't need, you you don't need right now a slap on the wrist with a ruler. What you need is to hear that when you pray, don't ask can because he can. He owns everything, cattle on a thousand hills. There's nothing that our King Jesus cannot do. So quit asking, can you? If you can, would you fix this situation? If you can, could you heal this relationship? If you can, would you bring my son home? Quit asking those questions. Say, I know you can. Jesus, will you? Change your mind on that. Have the mindset of the leper and say, I know you can do this. And I'm asking you, will you? And have the support system around you to pray and plead on on your behalf to God. And then in the same way, I have the same mindset of centurion, that I bring nothing to the table. I'm not even worthy to make this request, but I know you can't, so I'm going to ask it anyways. And you don't even have to show up in the way that I'd want you to show up. If you would just show up in any way you can, I would be grateful, God. But let us be, have good cheer. That the first, after the Sermon on the Mount, the first miracles that Jesus performed were not for the religious elite. And they were not for the ones that had everything together. And they were not for the ones that had it all figured out. So if you're in this room today and you feel like God only helps those that are standing on a platform, or only God only cares for those that are leading in such a way, or God only answers the prayers of this person, but he'll never care about me, I would say you're right where you need to be. You've embraced the humility. 
but grow in your confidence that God is who he says he is and he can do anything he wants. So stop asking can, but ask will. And then see what God does. And if he chooses not to answer in this moment, it doesn't mean that he's not good. It means he's got a better plan for you. And I know that can sound cliche to say, but it's so true. And we have to lean in to those promises over and over and over again. I mean, again, as we start to read and study the life and the person of Jesus, aren't we so glad that God did not answer his prayer in the garden? Aren't we so glad that the only reason we have salvation is when God, or Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. God said, no, son. This is what has to take place for the salvation of us. So don't mistake an unanswered prayer for God not loving you or caring for you. But let us with boldness and all humility approach the throne of grace, not asking can, but saying you can, will you do it? So this morning the question is simple. How and where in our lives do we need to humble ourselves and pray confidently that he can, that God is able, that he healed the leper and he healed the centurion slave, and he can fix whatever's broken in our lives, that he can do it. So this morning, let us, let us pray in that way. For those that need to be humbled, I'm going to ask God to humble us. And for those that need to be encouraged, I'm going to ask God to encourage us. Let us lean into the face, into the presence of King Jesus with these requests. Amen? Let's pray.